theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for the lovely introduction about my mother. Thank you. I take all the credit. (laughs) She takes the credit. I'm sorry, she takes the credit. Okay. There was a... uh, a dinner, a banquet in which they uh, introduced Senator Joseph Lieberman from uh, Connecticut and the master of ceremonies was extolling his virtues excessively so when he stood up he said it's a pity that my parents are not here this evening my father would have appreciated these words and my mother would have believed them (laughs) but I do believe everything he said about my mother actually and it's true, thank you and welcome to all I want to thank our hosts, hostess and host, for your hospitality this morning. And Bruchai uh, Sabayis, and, uh, welcome to all of you. There is a, a, um, a fascinating phenomenon now uh, taking root in the world, and this is part of what what I want to address today, but by prefacing a a Mishnah, a law on Judaism, which at the surface is very technical, but we want to study it from a deeper perspective and a deeper point of view. The, one of the tractates of Talmud is known as Tractate Kiddushin, and it's dedicated to marriage. And it opens up with these words, Ha'isha niknes b'sholosh drachem b'kesef u'b'shtar u'b'biyah. Which means the marital union, the legal Jewish marital union, the acquisition of the relationship of the bond, Ha'isha Niknas, is through three methods, one of three methods. Money, kesef, silver, literally. Shtar, a document. Or the third one, Bia, which is living together intimately as a husband and a wife. In other words, method number one, which is practiced today, is (coughs) that the groom gives silver or money or something that's worth money, like a ring, to his bride, and says, You're consecrated to me. We're now husband and wife through this ring, and they're now a married couple. Method number two is star. He gives her a document, a piece of paper, and on the document it says, Method number three is bia, which means witnesses observe how the husband and the wife uh, go in exclusively to their home or to a room, and they live together as a husband and a wife, obviously privately, and that also affects a marriage. And from then, they are a married couple, they want to separate, there's a need for a get, a divorce, and so forth. The common practice today is method number one. Money. A ring is worth money, and that's how we do the Kiddushan, that's how Jewish marriages are performed. The Gemara says, the Gemara tells us, in Tractate Yavamas, that even though halachically all three methods are valid, in the Torah we have a source for all three, 
each one is specified in some form in the Torah. Kesef, money, we know from where. So the Gemara says, Kesef, how do we know you could betroth the woman? You could marry through money, through a ring. How do we know that affects a marriage? The Talmud answers, famously, Kicha, Kicha, Mizdei Efren, which means, by marriage, it says, Ki Yikach Ish Isha, and Parshas Ki in the book of Dvarim, when a man takes a wife, the term that's used is take, Yikach. When Avraham Avinu purchases the Ma'aras HaMachpelah for his wife Sarah after her death, it says, Nasati Kesef, Hasadek Kachmi Mani, Avraham tells Efren, I have given the money for the field, take it from me. So we do what's called a gzereshava, kicha, kicha, here it says taking, here it says taking, just like there, the acquisition was through money, so here the taking is also through money. It's of course strange, parenthetically, that the source of marriage is learned from a story about burial. It's a little strange that the acquisition of Avram for the Maris is the source of how we get married. Torah couldn't find another uh, place in which to intimate this law. So there's many explanations, but one of them I'll share with you today, and that is that the sale of the Maris HaMachmele was unique. What made it unique? That each party felt they got an unbelievable bargain. Ephraim came home to his wife that day, and he said, the Jews think they're, they, they say the Jews are smart. But Avraham Avinu paid 400 silver shekel pure silver of the highest level of silver, that's equivalent according to the Gemara and Baba Metziah, to one million dollars for what? For a little cave, for a garage somewhere at the edge of Hebron. He paid enormous amounts of money. I don't know what took him over, but I'm very happy with the deal. Avraham Avinu came home and told his son Yitzchak, for one million dollars I purchased the resting place of Adam and Chavu. So the Talmud learns marriage from there. Because when is a marriage successful? If each party cultivates that perspective. If the chassan or the husband comes home and says, look what I got for what? All I gave is myself, and I know who I am. And look what I got in return, my wife. And the wife cultivates the same perspective. But if each one feels how lucky you are that you have me and I'm doing you a favor to be here with you, then it's not the best ingredient for a, 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 a meaningful and inspiring relationship. So that's why marriage is learned out from that story, because that story was unique in the sense that each one felt they got an unbelievable deal that was incredible. So that's method number one. Method number two is star, a document. We learned that also from the Torah. Method number three is ubala through intimacy. Comes the Gemara and says, even though biblically you can do all three, Rav, the sage Rav, man gid man he would give severe penalties for somebody who betrothed their wife through living together. The sages instituted only one of the first two methods. Living together comes after the marriage, but the marriage itself should be affected either through the money, through the ring, or through the document. Not the third thing. And he gave severe penalties. Although biblically, it's permissible. It's a legal method. (laughs) 
that's the halacha as it is in the Mishnah and in the Gemara practice till today. We use the first method, as I said, kesef. But I want to use this as a paradigm for exploring this theme much deeper. Yesterday, the Haftarah of Parshas Bamidbar, which is dedicated to different forms of relationships from Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, the Haftarah of Bamidbar, Hashem prophesies it to the Jewish people, who that day when Mashiach comes, you're not going to call me any more Baili, you're going to call me Ishi. You're going to call me Ishi. Baili means my husband. Ishi means my husband. But you're not going to call me Baili, you're going to call me Ishi. What's the difference? Now we call God my husband, the word of Baili in Hebrew. Beis Ayin Lamed Yud. Then we're going to call him Ishi, Aleph Yud Shin Yud. What's the difference? They both mean husband even in modern Hebrew today. Bali or Ishi. But he says no more Bali, it's going to be Ishi. There's going to be a change. Item number three, exhibit number three. We're coming from Lagboimer last Sunday. There's a story in Medrash, in Shir Hashirim, in the Song of Songs about Rav Shimon Bayechai. What's the story? It's on the words, Nagila We're going to rejoice in you. So the Medrash tells the following story, a very strange story. There was a couple that did not have children for ten years. This is in the times of Reb Shimon Bar-Yechai, who lived in the second century after the Common Era, after the destruction of the second Mesamikdash, a student of Rabbi Akiva, and it happened in the city in Eretz Yisrael called Tzidon. T-Z-E-D-O-N. Tzadik Yudalad Vavnun Tzidon. A couple, unfortunately, did not have children for ten years. Now you know the Mishnah also, the Mishnah in Tractate Yuvamas, that that's grounds for a divorce. The halacha, you get divorced so that he can remarry, she can remarry, and it's interesting that according to halacha, she can also remarry. In other words, long before science knew this, the halacha recognized that infertility can be attributed to the husband. The ancient world did not know that. They attributed exclusively to the woman, but in Allah, it's not that way. She can also remarry somebody else, because she might have children with somebody else. It's a fascinating thing, 18, 1900 years ago, that they did not attribute infertility exclusively to one party, to the, to the, to the, female, to the wife. Rather, it could have been the husband, could have been the wife. Okay, the Ramah writes in Shulchan Aruch that today this halacha is not enforced, it's not practiced. If the husband and the wife want, they can continue being married together even without children for many different reasons. Some people say it only applies in Israel and so forth. Although some people still practice it, in fact, you may know what occurred uh, not very long ago. Um, um, there was a young man, a young woman, fine Jews, they lived in Benebrak in Israel. They came from a very strong Lithuanian literature background, very, very firm, observant Jews. And they were married, they had a fine marriage, and after 10 years they didn't have children. So he went to his Rosh Hashiva in Bnei Brak, a famous Rosh Hashiva, who, uh, who uh, professed perhaps you know, a very rigorous approach, very rigorous approach. And he said, uh, you want to be Mekayim, the mitzvah of Piyavirivya, of having children. Unfortunately, uh, you, know, you should get divorced and, uh, and remarry and hopefully have children. They debated back and forth, but they went to every doctor in the you know every doctor they can. They tried everything. Unfortunately, ten years were up, and he gave her a get. They got divorced. A little while later, a few months passed, and they discovered she was pregnant, and he was a kohen. 
So this was a tragedy beyond a tragedy. In addition to the fact that they went through all that they went through. And they got divorced. So if he wouldn't be a Kayan, he could remarry her. Fine, and live happily ever after. Now, it wasn't only that they would be divorced, they couldn't remarry. It's that she would have a child from him, and they couldn't live, and the child can't grow up with his father. So it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. And he went to all their abundant and Russian shivas and b'nei He <laughs> said, what should we do? This is something, what should we do? She's a grusha, you're a client, what should we do? It's a divine tragedy. I don't know, there's nothing to say. It's a horrible story. There's nothing to say. Who would expect Pumpkin? He went to a very big rov in Yerushalayim. The rov said, this issue, you got to go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Beyond our, uh, our you know, realm, we could work with halacha. We can, there's nothing we can do here. you got to go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. However, he came from, uh, from a very, very strong background of uh, an environment of, uh, of the Snagden, who were very, very opposed to, uh, sadly, very, very opposed to the Rebbe and the Chabad. And he said, no way. No way. Where I was trained, we don't go to the Rebbe. But there was a desperate situation. Pregnancy was continuing. They were both miserable. His Rosh Hashiva was, unfortunately, sadly, a very famous opponent of the Rebbe. So it would be a betrayal of his whole, you know, education. But people started to pressure him and said, you know, you're going to... You're gonna, the Rebbe is the address for this, whether you like it or not. And his wife's family pressured him. They were a little more sensible about it. So begrudgingly, he came to the Rebbe. And he went by the Rebbe Sunday for dollars, when the Rebbe would distribute dollars, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoons. And very briefly, he told the story. Mekoyan, married for ten years, got divorced, discovered my wife is pregnant. So the Rebbe immediately responds, So straighten with the mama. You should talk to your mother about it. He left and he tells his escort, I told you it's futile. I should go talk to my mother. How is my mother going to help me? What, is my mother going to change the Shulchan Aruch? How is my mother going to help me? I told you it's futile. The man said, listen, you got nothing to lose. The Rebbe told you to talk to your mother. Go talk to your mother. So he goes, he visits his mother wherever she lived, and he tells her what happened. He was by the Rebbe, he told the Rebbe the story. The Rebbe said, you're the actress. She started to cry. And she said, apparently, the Rebbe knows the truth. He said, which truth? So she says, your father and I couldn't have children. We adopted you as an infant. We made a vow that in order to give you a normal childhood, we're never going to tell you. We made a vow, we made a shvu, an oath, we're never going to tell you. That's what we did. And we fulfilled it, you know, we gave you a very happy life, a good upbringing, a family. We wanted you should feel that you're in a wholesome structure. And we never told you, but you're not a koyan. You're not a koyan. So obviously they remarried. So back to the story, they come to Reb Shimon by Yechai. They want a divorce. Ten years, no children. They want a divorce. Reb Shimon by Yechai says, Granted, I'll perform a get 
But there's one stipulation. They said what? He said, during the divorce ceremony, you should make a feast, just like the feast you made at the wedding. You got married with a feast, get divorced with a feast. This was a strange psak. Whoever heard that during a divorce, you make a party. In fact, where I live in Brooklyn, there was a younger man who got divorced, and he came to the Rav wearing a silk kapota with a gartel. And this, the Rav said, you go home and come back with rent garments. Don't put on festival clothing. So uh, the Rebbe's father, the Rav of Dnieper Petrovsky in the Ukraine, when he would perform a get, he would fast that day. He would fast that day. So Rashbi, Rav Shemba says, throw a party, a lavish party, like the wedding. Strange, strange halacha, strange psagdit. You could explain it, that it was basically symbolic of the fact that the divorce is not being done out of uh, venom or animosity or negative energy. The feelings are there just like at the wedding. But why? What was the point of it? They went home. They performed the divorce ceremony amidst a major feast. At a good feast, there's good wine. So she gave her husband for the last time to drink. He drank a few cups and he became a little inebriated. And he turns to his wife and says, we're departing from each other, so I want you to take the most precious thing you can find in this house, the most expensive, beloved article or item you see in this house, take it for yourself to your father's home. And he falls asleep, as men usually do. Sometimes women also fall asleep. He's sleeping, she tells her servants, carry him in his bed to my father's home. They carry him to her father's home. A few hours later, he wakes up. There's nothing like waking up in your mother-in-law's home. (laughs) Unexpected. So he opens his eyes. He opens his eyes. And he sees where he is. His wife is there. He says, what am I doing here? Where am I? She says, you're in my father's home. You're my parents' home. Why am I in this home? (laughs) We're supposed to be divorced. We're not together. He, she says, I was following what you told me to do. He said, what did I tell you to do? He said, I should take the most cherished, beloved thing in the home with me to my father's house. There's nothing in the house that I cherish as much as you. So I took you to my father's house. They heard this, the Medrash says. They came back to Rabbi Shemim Bayechai. <laughs> Shemim Bayechai said, now I'm going to pray for you. He prayed for them. And they had children. The obvious question is, why couldn't he pray in the beginning? <laughs> he had to perform a divorce, or say they should perform with a whole party. He could have done the deal in the beginning. Exhibit number four. You're with me? We discussed the methods of marriage. We discussed Ishi Baili. We discussed the story of Shem Bayechai. And now one more issue.
Chazal famously say in the famous the story of Yehuda after his brother Yosef is sold Yehuda leaves his brothers and he goes and he marries his wife and they have three children Eir, Einan and Shela Parshas Vayeshev and Eir and Einan die and Tamar is left alone Yehuda doesn't want to marry her off to his third son, Shela, because he feels that she's the one who's responsible for the death of his sons. And so in a difficult and desperate situation, Tamar arranges a situation in which she lives together with Yehuda, according to the process of Yibum, the procedure of Yibum leveret marriages. Before Matan Torah, Yibum leveret marriages was not only with a brother-in-law, as it's post-Matan Torah, but with any closest of kin, including with a father-in-law. And they, of course, have twins, Peretz and Zarach. Peretz would be the great-grandfather of Boaz, who would be the great-grandfather of David HaMelech. So the Gemara, the Medrash Rabbah, says famously in Parshas Vayeshev that everybody at that moment was busy with something. The Shvatim, the tribes, were busy selling their brother. And afterwards, regretting what they did, when they saw the pain of their father. Yaakov was busy grieving and mourning for his lost son. Yehuda was busy searching for a wife. He went to get married. Yosef was trying to come to terms with his new reality and grieving for his loss, sold from his family, from his father. And the Medrash says, and what was God busy doing? Everybody is busy. What was God busy doing? So the Medrash says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem was busy figuring out a way to create the light of Mashiach. Because Yehuda and Tamar's relationship produced Peretz, who's the great-grandfather of Boyaz, David, the father of Shlomo, which is the lineage from where Melech Mashiach comes. So while everybody was doing their thing, the Rebbeinu Shalolam, in his own way, was strategizing the light of Mashiach. We know Boyaz is not the only one responsible. A father is not the only one responsible for a child. A mother is also necessary, as you said. Equally, if not more. Boyaz had a wife. What was her name? Her name was Rus. Rus was the great-grandmother of David HaMalach. Where did Rus come from? Rus was a Moabite woman. Where did she come from? She came from another strange relationship. Everybody knows after the destruction of Zdoim, Light's oldest daughter got her father drunk. Because she felt there's nobody else left. And if they don't do this drastic act, there will be no future. And she lived with her father. And she conceived and gave birth to a child who she named Moab, which means from the father. And Rus came from there. Boyas came from Yehuda and Tamar. Rus came from there. And then Rus herself, as you all know in the book of Rus, how does she marry Boyas? She goes to the field one night. When he's winnowing, she lies down. In the middle of the night, he wakes up, he quakes, 
He's grasped. Who are you? And she says, Anoichi Rus Amasecha Amrus, you're made of Feirashta, Knofcha Lamascha. Spread your cloak on your maid Kigoyalata because you're my Redeemer. The Moabite woman who married a Jewish man, Machlein, who died in Moab, now ultimately marries Boyas. And from there come David Amalach. So the Kabbalah says, the Kabbalah says that there was a reincarnation. Boyaz was a reincarnation of Yehuda, who was a reincarnation of light. Rus was a reincarnation of Tamar, who was a reincarnation of light's daughter. So the three relationships really between the same souls, light and his daughter... The next generation, it's a reincarnation, Yehuda and Tamar. The next generation, or generations later, Boyaz was a reincarnation of Yehuda. And Rus was a Gilgul of Tamar. That's why Rus and Tamar both begin and end with a Tuf and a Resh. And that's why Yehuda is the numerology of 21 in small numbers. If you go from the numbers 1 to 9, Yehuda, Yehuda is 1 and He is 5, Vav, Dalet, He, it's 21, and Light in small numbers is 18, Lamed is 3, Vav is 6, Tess is 9, is 18, so Yehuda is 21, Light is 18, but Light was reincarnated 3 times, so 18 plus 3 is 21, because Light becomes Yehuda and becomes Bayas. So it's 3 relationships. Now I want you to realize something. In all these relationships... The husband doesn't know what's happening. And the woman is fully aware of what's happening. You realize that? But in three levels. Light is smashed. He's intoxicated. He's drunk. He doesn't know he's coming or going. He was completely drunk. He didn't know what happened. Yehuda wasn't drunk. Yehuda knew that he's with a woman. But he didn't know who. So he was semi uh, uh, semi-unconscious right Boyaz again knew and knew it's Rus but completely almost completely passive Rus was the one who initiated it and she realized that a regular Shatchin is not going to do the trick <laughs> Shatchin is an acronym Shatchin is Sheker Doiver Kesef Neutel speaks lies takes money <laughs> Right? It's not my own acronym. If you're in the gives us acronym. Yeah, you know the Maisa, the Shatchen, uh, the Shatchen tells this girl, she says, I have an unbelievable bacha for you. Fine, he convinces after months of lying and exaggerating, he convinces. They go into a room together. After a few hours, he comes to visit. He asks her, new, how was the courtship? How was the date? So she whispers to him, You're a filthy liar. Shatchan says, why? She says, everything you said is a lie. You told me he's slim, he's fat. You told me he's handsome, he's not handsome. You told me he's kind, not kind. You told me he's intelligent, he's dumb. Shatchan says, you don't have to whisper, he's also deaf. (laughs) So, so, so it's just a joke, don't worry. (laughs) Maybe it's not such a joke. It's a fascinating thing. The seed of Mashiach starts with Light and his daughter, right, from where Rus comes. Yehuda and Tamar, from where Boyaz comes. Boyaz and Rus, from where David comes. And in all three situations, 
the man is clueless. Now you feel a little better? Lloyd completely doesn't know what's happening. Later it becomes a little better. Yehuda knows but doesn't understand who it is, what the significance is. And Boyaz completely wasn't spoken to as Rus approaches in the middle of the night because she had to shock him. She had to trigger something. He had to realize, whoa, this is something special. This is unique. And maybe he would wake up under normal circumstances. The shayfet of Israel to marry a Moabite convert would not be a... Uh, a reality. So here we have a fascinating thing that sometimes the most dramatic events in history, in all these events, the woman is completely sober, cognizant of what's happening, initiating, very, very active, and the man is either passive or drunk, <laughs> or clueless. Why? Why is that? Why is that? You would think it should be a, a full partnership. The answer to this is very, very is, is is simple but very profound. As usually, simple things are profound. It's based on a beautiful mimer. The Alter Rebbe has in Lakuti Torah and Parshas Mizrach Sabrach and Mizmer Shir Chanukas Abayis Ladavet. He tells their beautiful story from Talmud Yerushalmi, Tractate Peah. Uh, not Tractate the Tractate Peah, the Bryce of Peah, Chapter 3. There's a story. One of the interesting laws of charity is known as the law of Shikha, forgetting. What's that mitzvah? If you're a farmer, you own a field or a farm, and you make sheaves, which means you harvest your grain, your barley, your wheat, your spelt, whatever it is, and you have sheaves, you have bundles, which you're ready to take to your granary, to your house, to your storage place. And you're carrying your sheaves, and you forget one of them. You forget. You're not allowed to retrieve it. You have to leave it for the poor. If you forget two bundles near each other, you can go back, three, four. But if you forget one, there's a mitzvah of shikha, and that is, you're not allowed to go retrieve it, you have to leave it for the poor. In fact, when Rus goes to Boya's field, that's what she's gleaning, she's gleaning the sheaves that were forgotten. So the Chazal tells us a story in Tractate Peah, that there was a pious man who owned a field, and uh, he forgot one of the sheaves, so of course he left it for the poor, and he turns to his son and he says, son, I want you to make a feast. Son says, why? He says, today we were to do a mitzvah. Which mitzvah? Shikha. So his son said, every time you do a mitzvah, you throw a party? I mean, every time you put on filling, you make a feast. You do mitzvahs throughout the day. He says, this is a different type of mitzvah. Why is it a different type of mitzvah? Most mitzvahs, all mitzvahs that you do, you do consciously. This is the only mitzvah you can't do consciously. You can only do it subconsciously. If you want to do this mitzvah, you can't do it. If you don't want to do the mitzvah, then you do it. Every single mitzvah in the world, in Torah, depends on your will. You want to give tzedakah, you want to study, you want to daven, you want to help another person, you want to this, do this mitzvah, that mitzvah. Shikha, forgetting, if you say, I'm going to forget, you didn't forget it. And if you didn't forget it, it's not a mitzvah to leave it. I mean, it's a nice thing, you can give tzedakah, but it's not the mitzvah of shikha. In order to perform the mitzvah of shikha, you have to forget. 
But you can't prepare to forget, can you? You can't say, I'm going to forget. You may know that you're the forgetful type. Right? You know the story, there was a Jew from Chelm who came to the Rav and said, I have a problem every morning, I get out of bed. Until I get out of the house, it takes me two hours. I never find my keys, my shoes, my suitcase, my hat. There's people, they never find anything. (laughs) So uh, I always lose things. So the Rav says, the night before, make a list. When you're in bed, make a list where everything is brilliant. He gets into bed, takes a pen and paper. My hat is here, my shoes are here, my keys are here, my shirt is here, my pants are here, everything. And I, I'm in bed. (laughs) Gets up in the morning, gets out of bed, takes the list, gathers everything together, comes to number 10, I'm in bed. He looks in the bed, he's not there. Under the pillow, on top of the pillow, under the mattress. Three hours looking where he is. Comes to the Rav and says, every day takes two hours. Today I'm still not done. Rav says, what happens? I can't find myself. I'm looking for myself in bed. He says, when you are looking for yourself, you could never find yourself. In order to forget, you can't plan forgetting. You could want to forget sometimes. But you can't plan it. She says, for this I have to make a special party. What's the significance of doing a mitzvah that you can't plan to do, that you can't do consciously? This means that you're accomplishing something that you cannot prepare for. And the Alter Rebbe explains, I'm saying it in my own words, the greatest things in life always happen when you don't prepare for them. And the reason is, if you plan it, if you prepare it, it's controlled by the limitations of your brain and your identity. So great things can happen, but they're limited to your perspective and perception. And we're all limited people as great as we are. When you don't plan for it, when you don't initiate it, it's not confined. And then things can happen beyond your expectations, your imaginations. Right? Everybody knows that sometimes the greatest things happen spontaneously, right? As they say at some conventions, now we're going to have spontaneous dancing. <laughs> we always like to plan. We like to plan our bar mitzvahs and our kiddushim and our weddings and everything should be perfect. Right? The napkins on this side, the spoon this way, shaped in this fashion. And we want to plan the energy and the ambience. And it's important to plan. Right? And it's beautiful and so forth. But uh, the most powerful moments you can never plan for. Because by definition, what you're planning for is confined. It's limited. By my dream, by my expectations, by my desires, by my shtick, by my ego. All mitzvahs, we're doing the divine will, but since it's our input, I decide I'm doing it, so the mitzvah in a way is limited. Shikha, forgetting... You can't plan. It's something that's planned for you. It's something that draws a transcendental energy. What the Alter Rebbe calls makif harachik, the highest level of makif, completely beyond the ego, and therefore you can't be there. You can't prepare for it. So understand, when the light of Mashiach had to be created, the men couldn't be there. Consciously. Light was drunk. Yehuda didn't know what he's doing. And Boyaz was overtaken by fright, by Yechrod. He was quaking, he was trembling. 
the only one who could be cognizant of it was the woman. Why? So this is connected with what Kabbalah and Hasidus explain that the quality of the woman as a mechabal ready to nullify her ego and absorb an energy from beyond her allows her to be present in greatness and not disturb it. If she would always have to be a mashpia, which means impose her energy, she would limit the creation of the light of Mashiach. Since the woman possesses the quality of standing and absorbing something, as she does for every child in her womb, creating space for something beyond her, the word in Hebrew for womb is rechem, which is associated with the word rachem, compassion, which is creating space for the other. As we know in a relationship, it's usually, without generalizations, but usually, it's a feminine quality to be able to be there for people and absorb their pain and be empathetic. Be, have empathy and just accept it without feeling the need to impose on it. Which is one of the issues often that happens in relationships because sometimes a woman thinks her husband is like her girlfriend. So she downloads all of her stress just like she does with her girlfriend. The difference is her girlfriend listens and says, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Empathizes. They quetch each other for 25 minutes. They end up giggling. And it's beautiful. The same thing she tries to do to her husband. I had a crazy day and this and this and this. And he's getting stressed out. Why? Because most men think they need to find a solution. They also think you're blaming them for not being the perfect husband. Because they have to be a mashpi, you have to fix it. What's broken, tell me, tell me what's broken, I'll fix it. Just to be there, he has to learn the art. So therefore, this man threw a special meal for Shikha, and when the light of Mashiach, which is a transcendental light completely beyond the world, has to be created, the man has to be a little bit out of the picture. But the woman could be cognizant because she won't allow her limitations to obscure or compromise or manipulate the depth and the intensity of the event. And we see this in all the relationships. It's not now the time to elaborate, but this is also true about Yishai and his wife. There's a story about Yishai and his wife, and the, and the next generations as well. Continuous generations as well. Now, one of the fascinating phenomena we observe today in the world what historians and sociologists are calling the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring is the tide of revolutions that have been sweeping in in Africa and in the Middle East, beginning with uh, Tunisia, continuing to Egypt, spreading in Libya, trying to spread in Syria, without much success, Yemen, Iran, without much success in the meantime, Saudi Arabia to a limited degree. And the fascinating thing, of course, is that societies that have been uh, submerged and entrenched 
for hundreds and hundreds of years, in one way or another, in tyranny and dictatorship, with almost complete lack of human rights and individual freedom and dignity, suddenly their youths are dreaming and aspiring and so forth. Where it's going to go is hard to predict, because... uh, you know, sometimes you overthrow a government and you're looking for freedom, but uh, what you get instead is a worse uh, uh, tyrant, a dictator. I mean, uh, Russia in 1917 overthrew the Tsarist family, the Tsarist monarchy, and in its lieu they received uh, Bolshevik communism, which created Stalin's hellish paradise. Uh, for years, for 70 years, in which untold millions were killed in Stalin's gulags uh, all across the Soviet Union, and some of our families come from there, and know many of the experiences so many people had in that uh, hell of the Soviet Union. So it's hard to predict how these things evolve. But one thing we see is the fascinating phenomenon of individuals searching for their own voice, for their own freedom, what the Westerners like calling for the spirit or passion of democracy. And this is what I would like to pay attention to for a few moments. What is the difference if you marry, you get married through a ring, through a document, or through beer? through living together as a husband and a wife. And why was one banned by the sages? The third one banned by the sages. So the Chazal explained, Mishum Pritzusa, because of Pritzus. How do you translate Pritzus in Melbourne? Huh? Okay, not bad. Literally, the word means a breach. Peretz, parots, a breach. Huh? Yeah, like in the other extreme, Uferatsa. Or, or when Peretz is born, you breached. This is a breach of boundaries of modesty, that it's not modest and able for a husband and wife to say, we're getting married now, and how are we doing it? We'll see you later, let's lock the door. We don't do it. There's a time for that, there's a place for it, and privacy and so forth. We do Kesef, or Shtar, today I said we do Kesef with a ring. Fine. But I want to take it a step deeper. What's the real difference between these three methods? So listen for a moment. The first two methods, the marriage is happening through something external. A ring, money. It doesn't have to be a ring, by the way. It could be a dollar. In fact, there was a chassan once who was getting married, and he went by the Rebbe for dollar Sunday. He told the Rebbe he was getting married tonight. The Rebbe gave him an extra dollar. To give the kala, he said, I don't mean you should be Makadashim with this dollar. But after the chup, after you marry, give it to her. But don't use it as kiddushin. <laughs> In other words, you could use it as kiddushin, that's why you had to tell her. But there, the marriage is happening through something external a document, a ring, something worth money. In the third method, what's affecting the marriage? Themselves. The husband and the wife themselves, without anything external. What does this represent on a more uh, general, psychological, emotional, spiritual level? 
In the first two methods, the marriage is happening through something objective outside of the couple. A third object, not them. Something else is what's bringing them together. In the third method, there's nothing else. It's him and her, Bia, living together. Mamash, nothing else external but them. This represents the big question. And that is, what is a better marriage? What is a better union? What is a deeper romance? One that is created through an objective standard outside of the couple, or one which is created exclusively as a result of the subjective experiences of the man and the woman themselves. At first glance, it would would seem that the latter is much more powerful. Because why should anybody else or anything else get involved in love? The most powerful relationship is the man and the woman themselves subjectively experience a bond and come together. And that's what the third method represents. The first two methods represent the fact that you're relying on something outside of you to create the bond. And this becomes a very practical question for some young people that I know and perhaps that you know and in the world in general. In modern days, the third method is always advocated. It's all about you too. It's all about you too. What do you want? What do you want? What is your passion? What is your subjective experience? What does your heart and mind and future tell you? That's what the third method represents. Ideally, that's beautiful. It's perfect. The fire burns when two hearts are aglow without the need of an external standard. However, there is also a great challenge in that. The great challenge is the fire can be very, very powerful because there's a lot of kerosene and gasoline and twigs and tissues. But in a few months or a few years, the fire can also go very, very low. And then all that remains sometimes are black, dimmed coals. That great fire that was burning also often goes out. When if a relationship in simple terms is based exclusively on the fact that we feel great, we feel awesome, this is powerful. Why mix in anything or anybody else? It's all about our love. Beautiful. But in a year, or six months, or two years, maybe, maybe not, but maybe, feelings change. Subjective experiences are always developing one way or another way. And then often, we're left with very little. This is what the sages meant on a deeper level. Pritzis comes from the word breach, an opening, a leak. If the only basis for the union is the subjective model, I want, you want, nothing else, what can happen is there may be a leak, there may be an opening, a hole may open in that feeling from where the energy is going to leak out and the love and the romance will diminish or disappear 
or at least shrink and slowly be depleted. The first two methods are different. What do they represent? They represent that there are certain values and standards that transcend the individual husband and wife. They have a subjective feeling, but they also have a commitment to a sacred institution called marriage and to God's will that people be married and create that institution that is serious, it's committed, it's not just my subjective feeling, I'm crazy about you. Tomorrow I may be crazy, I may not be crazy. (coughs) Or converse. It's a commitment to something outside of my own feeling, an objective thing outside of me, and then there's a foundation that's unshakable upon which the beer, the intimacy, when it comes after that, can usually flourish. In a perfect world, if I was always in touch with my soul, a husband and wife are one. They're two halves of one soul. Why do you need anything else? They come together. If they're soulmates, that fire will burn forever. Beer. But the problem is, there could be a hole and everything will leak out because I'm not always in touch with my deepest self. And if I rely only on my subjective emotions, sometimes I'm left with nothing. Sometimes I may be overcome with an instinct, with an appetite, with an addiction, with a craving, with a challenge, with a problem, and that subjective fire is extinguished. When I have something that's consistent, it's a commitment to the transcendence of marriage that's beyond me, then there's an unshakable foundation upon which the subjective romance can hopefully flourish. You're with me? Right? You agree? Now, this is true between man and God as well, every chassan and kalashem and the Jewish people. Do you need objective standards and values and factors to create a relationship between you and Hashem? Often people argue, I have my own relationship with God. I'm spiritual by nature. Why do you need anything else? What do you need anything else? My heart, my soul, my genuine spirit, my inner identity. We want, we, I, I, I want to live with God like a husband and a wife. What are you introducing? Kesef and Shtar. What does Kesef represent? The word Kesef means yearning. What does Shtar represent? Document, the written document represents Torah. Why do I need Tfilah and Torah? To pray and nullify my ego to God, or to learn Torah and follow its mitzvahs, beer! I want intimacy! My subjective experience! In an ideal world, you're right. You have a soul. Your soul is a part of God. You guys just have each other. But in an imperfect world, my soul is a part of God, but I also have other parts. I have a lot of layers. And I have moods, and I have instincts, and I have cravings that are not always the most moral and sacred. So I need kesef, I need villa, I need to pour my heart out, I need to nullify myself, I need to dedicate myself, I need shtar, I need Torah mitzvahs. And then 
the beer can flourish. Comes Hashem and says, that day, when Mashiach comes, you're not going to call me Baili anymore. You're going to call me Ishi. What's the difference? The word Baili means my husband, but it also is like the word Baal, my master. Authority. Ishi is Eishyud, my fire, my partner. Is God an authority or is God a best friend? Depends where you're holding. Do you need an authority in a relationship or it's just let freedom ring? My subjective experience. Depends where you're holding. In a less than perfect world, you need an authority. Everybody needs a balabas. Everybody needs a baili. You need a balabas. You need Yerushalayim. You need Yerushalayim to stop you. To motivate you. To inspire you. You need tefillah. You need tairi. You need kasef and shtar. Baili. It's a relationship in which Hashem is the balabas. There's an authority. There's a commitment. Even if I don't want, I'm not in the mood. This is the right thing. Even though my heart doesn't take me there. If I would only follow my heart, then I can eat things that I shouldn't be eating. Like some of the cheesecake out there. <laughs> and so on and so forth. There's an authority level. Why? Because I'm not always in touch with my soul. And if I'm just based on my subjective experience, it comes and it goes. Fire is burning, the kerosene is gone, boom, no fire anymore. You're left with nothing. For that day, when the godliness of every person will be revealed, then Ishi. Then there's going to be Bia. Then we say it's complete intimacy. Mitzvah's tailless loss of love. Complete intimacy. The idea of mitzvah won't be anymore a commandment. You have to command you. When it's not you, I have to command you. When it's you, I don't have to command you. The Rebbe once said, why is it that having children is a mitzvah on a husband, not on a wife? Does it make sense? We all knew, we all know who, who's responsible for having children. We all know that if we would depend on men with all due respect to my gender, the world would have been extinct after other Marish. <laughs> so the woman carries the child. Woman gives birth. Woman nurses. The mother raises. The father contributes something. And the mitzvah is on him. The mitzvah is not a mitzvah on a woman. So the Rebbe explained, you don't understand. The word mitzvah means commandment. A commandment is, it's not who you are. So I command you, this is what you should do. Without the commandment, you actually may not do it. The Rebbe said, for a woman, bringing a child into the world, she senses is the calling of her essence. It's one with her. So the term mitzvah doesn't apply. So when it says mitzvah, it doesn't mean there's not going to be no mitzvahs. It means it's not the paradigm of commandment, of baili. It's the paradigm of ishi, of intimacy, of oneness. Because your own very identity will be one with God, just like a husband and wife. You don't need an external standard outside of yourself. Now, let us see where society is going, where history is progressing.
it used to be just a few hundred years ago. And even today, much of the Middle East and the Arab world and some other cultures, that the paradigm of life was monarchy. Bailey. Came democracy. And what does democracy say? Who decides the destiny of your life? Me, 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 me. When the New York Times wanted to summarize the 20th century... So they decided it's the me generation. It's the, def- the end of it, and I spent the first decade of the 21st. It's the me. And that's why there's so many things. All of our new toys begin with an I. It's iPhone. It's iPad. It's iPod. And finally, when you have a game called Wii, it's spelled with two I's. Still on. And many other eyes. That's the call of democracy. Choice. Liberty. Freedom. Individuality. How does this fit with Judaism? And people don't understand that this is probably one of the most least articulated crises. Because this is not a problem in a school or a system or a teacher or a family or a community. The very concept of democracy and Judaism seem at odds. Because 400 years ago, if you were educating your little boy or little girl, and you would say, And he would say, He knew what Melech means. He lived in a city, in a town, in a country, whether it was Russia, Poland, France, Germany, where there was a Melech, a king. Whether the king was a benevolent king or a despot or a lunatic, but there was a king, and the world evolved around kings. So here you told him, above the king is Melech Malchem Lachem. There's the king above everybody, the real king. It made sense. Kabbalah Samalchus In our generation, with the Yisoides, we scoff at Malchus. It's true that two billion people watched. Uh, what's his name? Prince uh, Prince William get married. So as much as we scoff at royalty, somehow the world is still infatuated by our friend Queen Elizabeth. At least, huh? Even Obama, the president of a democratic world, at least till today. So two billion people. That's a lot of people. It's more people that, than, than, that watch my shear on the yeshiva.net. I mean, soon, hopefully, I'll get there, but not yet. Maybe if I can get the prince to give a shear. I'm not sure we want to all learn from what he has to say. Uh, but you saw, the world is still, still in fact. But, but, but an interesting observation, you see... What was everybody craving for? What is everybody craving? What, what, do you, what do you gain by seeing the wedding? Somehow, somehow, especially the Brits and the English and a lot of other people, uh, a philosopher said this, I read in an article, he said, we want the royal family of Britain to be above the ordinary, but he says, unfortunately, they're, they're just as we are. They're very ordinary people. But we want we want the mystery. 
We want that mystery, Malchus, Malchus. But the foundation of Judaism is Kabbalah, El Malchus, Shemayim. But the foundation of our societies is choice. And even if you live in a Jewish society, in a traditional society, and in a from community in Melbourne, nonetheless, but the very atmosphere of our world today is one of freedom and democracy. And the foundation is Hamelech, and we don't even know what a king is. We don't have the paradigm. And that's why, when did democracy come to the United States? When was the United States founded? Which year? 1776. And what happened the same year or a year afterwards? People don't realize. Which year did the Alter Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe reveal his shit of Chassidus Chabad? was 1777, 1778. It's a coincidence, it's not a coincidence. And the Baal Shem Tov was born in 1698. Mamish, the years when the Enlightenment in Europe began, when the philosophers of Enlightenment began introducing the idea of individual human spirit and freedom, Chassidus was introduced. Why? It's not a coincidence. This was articulating the depth in Judaism that can respond and deal with a new wave of freedom. As long as the paradigm of the world was kings, monarchs, Judaism can also operate on that level. Who's Hashem? He's the Melech. He's the boss. Baili, he's the master. The moment the emphasis became, who are you? You make the choices of your own life came the Baal Shem came the great masters of Chassidus, and they revealed in Torah a new language. They revealed the language that was there latent. And what was the language? The language was, Mipsari that if you excavate your own identity, and if you go deeply into yourself, you'll find God in you if you'll uncover the deepest resources of your personality, you're going to find your holiness, you'll find your soul, and your soul is a your soul is a piece of the divine. So God doesn't only talk to you, God talks, speaks through you. It's not just a mitzvah as a commandment, it's a mitzvah as a link. It's not just God as your master, it's God as the deepest expression of you. The eye of I, the eye of I, the deepest sense of I is divine. So this comes together with a second progress in history. And what's the second thing that developed in history? It was the spirit of femininity, feminism. The two are not connected. What's the difference between masculinity and femininity spiritually? Hashem has two names. HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Shekhinah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is He. Shekhinah is She. Feminine. Why do we have two names for Hashem? There's two ways in which you can experience Hashem. One is masculine, one is feminine. What's the difference? Hashem as masculine is the God who's aloof, who's a little detached, who's a little transcendent, as men are often. Authoritative. What's God as Shekhinah, feminine? That's the God that's intimate. 
That's the God that's connected with everything, that's one with everything, as a woman tends to be much, very often attached to life, very aware of details, intimately feeling everything, and that's why often more sensitive, because she feels life much more. It's not so easy for her to make believe the world doesn't exist, and to make believe the male never came. And to make believe that if you don't pay the bill, it'll just disappear. Because the man feels deep down the world doesn't really exist. But she's one with the world. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu represents God above. Shechina represents God within. Is Hashem above us or Hashem is within us? So the man wears a yarmulke because Hashem is above me, Bailey. The woman doesn't wear a yarmulke because her whole body is a yarmulke. The whole body is supposed to be divine. God is within every limb and every organ. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Hashem Soiv of Kalalman. He's above the world, beyond the world. Mamala Kalalman is Hashem fills every heartbeat, every blade of grass, every flake of snow, every droplet of rain, every grazing animal, every little child playing. It's two paradigms. One is Baili, one is Ishi. So Chsidis had to begin articulating the feminine voice of Judaism, that God is not just above you, God is within you, that's your truest, deepest self, so that in an age of democracy and freedom, when you say, you can celebrate it with your deepest self, because it revealed the relationship that exists intimately within, because you have a soul, you are a piece of the divine. That's the progression Reb Shimon was the founder of Kabbalah, which is of course the origin for Hasidus. A couple comes to him and they don't have children. You remember the story? A couple comes to him, they don't have children for ten years. He saw that there's something, in that particular case there was something missing. And what was missing is they had Kesef and Shtar. They had the external standards of keeping the marriage powerful. But what was missing was, there was missing a certain Isarusa de Losata, a certain outpouring of emotion, of intimacy between themselves that you can't create through an external standard. It's the third level. So Rajbi made a situation where they're going to get divorced and throw a party. And when he was a little drunk, just like Loit and Yehuda and Boyaz, so suddenly a depth came from him that was beyond his conscience. And finally he told his wife, take the best thing in the house. And she sees the opportunity, and she takes him, she says, I have nothing greater than you. This was an expression of spontaneous emotion, of an intimacy that's not transcribed in books. They're not going to teach this to you in a seminar. Right? This comes from within, it's the subjective experience. That became the vessel for a new flow of blessings, so now Rav Shem could pray for them. So Tilbi is a Mashiach, the main standard is Kesef and Shtar, the external values and standards that define our marriages, defines our relationships with Hashem. The closer you come to Mashiach, so Kabbalah is revealed, then Hasidus is revealed, and the emphasis goes not just on the objective standard, but also on the subjective experience. Once you have the basis of Kesef and Shtar, now you could build the foundation of the third element of Bia, which is the ultimate outpouring of intimacy between a person and the Rebbeinah by going deep into yourself and finding God within you. Not just within the texts, 
and not just within the books, and not just within the laws, and not just within the rituals, but mamish within you. And these are three stages in which Yiddishkeit developed, called Olam Shana Nefesh, space, time, and spirit. In the time of the Beis HaMikdash, where was the epicenter of Judaism? Where? In the Beis HaMikdash, you went to that place, that was the place. When the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, what became the epicenter of Judaism? Time, Shabbos, Yom Tif, the time of davening. As history progresses and the Baal Shem Tev comes, what becomes the epicenter of Judaism? Nefesh, in yourself. It's not where you are, it's not even when you are, it's who you are. You're looking for God, look in the mirror. So the whole, the emphasis now is on Bia, the third component. Rav Shimon Ba'yechai tells the couple, you need to make a party when you're getting divorced, and he triggers that passion. Once they had the first foundation, now you get to the deepest level, mitzvahs, palas, la'asid, love the reason that midwomen are potter for many of the mitzvahs. It's not because of a disconnection. It's because it's a connection that's deeper than a mitzvah. So masculine Judaism is very much based on ritual. Misha, Beidachs, Aliyahs, Chazonim, Balkhaidas, Rabbis, Tfilas. That's all Baili, God as the master. But the feminine, feminine Judaism is based on Ishi, it's mine. That's created usually in the kitchen, in the dining room, in the living room, in the home, in the bedroom. In other words, that's created in the daily grind of life. That's what's given in the chicken soup, in the gefilte fish, in the chalant. So that's that level. So when you look at the world progressing in a way that even societies that were filled with tyranny, suddenly there's a voice of revolution, I want freedom, I want freedom, I want freedom. You have there the clash in a very vivid way between authority, in that case Muslim authority, and human freedom, and the West is celebrating, the West says, finally, finally, democracy wins, finally, freedom wins, well, not yet, but that's what we're hoping for, finally, liberty wins. Now, that is true, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful, but that's step one. Step two is finding the soul of freedom, finding the soul of liberty. Finding the God within freedom, the God within democracy, the God within liberty, which is revealing the third element of Bia, of intimacy. Which is when you go deep into yourself, into your deepest freedom, you'll find your relationship there with Hashem. So Yiddishkeit is not imposed, Yiddishkeit is not a coerced, Yiddishkeit is not compelled, it's rather the expression of you. And that's why we needed Chassidus in this generation to articulate Judaism in that terms, in those terms, because the paradigm of Malchus completely changed. Ah. So now we can understand why in those three relationships of Light and his daughter, and Tamar and Yehuda, and Boyaz and Rus, so the woman is the one behind it, who strategizes it, who's cognizant of it who plots it, who's aware of it. It's the level of shikha, forgetfulness, that transcends completely the human paradigm. So the man who wants to impose must be sidetracked, so to speak. The woman who can be a macabre in a state of bittle, open to the experience beyond her, with silence, can be present. Which is why, under the chuppah, the Rebbe explains, she doesn't say anything. 
He says, Ariat Makodash. He doesn't even say, yeah. <laughs> At least say, yeah. Or say, I'll think about it. <laughs> no, she just stands there. Now, if she protests, obviously there's no chuppah. But nothing, nothing. So it could look like passivity. But the emiss is that they're getting married on two different levels. From the man's perspective, he could say Harriet Mukadashasli. The woman knows she's introducing an experience that can't be articulated in words. So she can't speak. Because if she whatever she says would limit it. Because she's being a Kaili to Shikha to a level that you can't remember, you can't be conscious saying, Okay, this is it, it's something beyond that. And that's what opens her up to the concept of a child, which is an infinite gift, a divine gift, to create life just like God, completely beyond the human experience. And if the woman would open her mouth under the chuppah, the world would not be ready to hear what she has to say. It would be like an atomic nuclear explosion. So we let him speak. When Mashiach comes, It'll be a koil kala, because then that voice can be articulated once there's a synchronization between God and the world, not only in a state of baili, but in a state of ishi. So that's where God doesn't only speak to us as a master, but through us. That's the third method of marriage, bia. So till Kabbalah and Chesidus, the focus was Kesef and Shtar. Kabbalah and introduced the third element of Bia. So we say, today we're not allowed to be Mekadosh with Bia, because it's Pritzis. If you only have intimacy, it's only me and God, it's only our own love, our own romance, there's nothing outside of us. It's beautiful, but there's going to be a breach. Pritzis and the water, is, the love is going to leak out. You need the foundation. But let's understand that the word Pritzis also comes from another word. Who is the grandfather of Mashiach? Peretz. Ma paratzta lecha peretz. Uferatzta yamavakedma. Peretz, why are you breaching all the boundaries? Oh, there's two types of breaching. There's a breach that you have to be afraid of, and there's a breach that you have to celebrate. Sometimes there's a breach. You say, "Mm, I see cracks in the wall. It's not a good sign. The house of Israel is falling down. Sometimes there's a breach that actually takes the world to a place beyond its limitations. So be an intimacy when the world is not ready is a breach of boundaries. <laughs> but when you reach the level of pritzis in the positive sense of <laughs> when there's the unity of Yisrael when there's the unity of the inner soul that's one so then there's no fear of a breach of modesty. On the contrary, then you want to go without, beyond limitations, mitzvahs, p'telis, lasid, love, it's complete oneness and intimacy. And that's the explanation, the Rebbe once explained, the Gavaldik and everybody wonders that by Kriyas Yamsov, the Jews sing Shira, and right after the Jews sing Shira, what happens? Miriam says, let's go sing. And she takes her drums and uh, tambourines, <laughs> Right? And she responds, Shiru Lashem. And the Mepharshim asks, What happened with Koil Beisha in front of all the men and Moshe Rabbeinu? They're singing. So one of the Mepharshim says, That's why she used drums so they won't hear the voices. I mean, tambourines. 
But the Rebbe doesn't accept that answer. He says, when you have so many people singing, you're going to hear their voice. Plus Rashi says, it was just like the men. So what's Pshat? So the Rebbe explained, let's understand. The problem of Koyal Be'isha Erva is because the world is in a state where sometimes people are not in touch with their soul. And when you're not in touch with the soul, you hear a voice. It can arouse within somebody thoughts that may be a little less than moral because the way he sees himself and he sees a woman and he sees life in general is not purely in divine terms. But by Kriyas Yamsov, it says, Zekeli Vanvehu. So what Yecheskel didn't see. So when the Jews were in such a state, the woman ought to sing. The woman ought to sing in front of the man. Because then the voice is not just disruptive, on the contrary, it's inspiring, it's exhilarating. In a holy, because then the world was in a, in a very pure, pure state. The idea of tzniyas is not essentially to crush the feminine spirit. On the contrary, it's to channel it in a way that's productive and meaningful in a less than perfect world. It's not to conceal the woman. It's to reveal her in a way that her pnimius is revealed, not only her chitzanius, which is why before the eight hadas, Adam and Chava could walk around without clothes. Why didn't they excommunicate them? <laughs> The answer, of course, is not only because there was nobody to do it, because it was appropriate. When my two-year-old boy runs around in the house without a pamper, I find it cute. When my 14-year-old, if he would do it, I wouldn't find it very cute. Why? Why do the standards change? They don't change, but a two-year-old is so innocent that just like I'm not embarrassed to look and expose my pinky, my finger, his whole body is holy, it's innocent. Adam and Chava were like children before the Eitzatas. It was innocent, just like you use your arm for a mitzvah to put on tefillin. So you use every part of your body for a mitzvah, including the lower parts of the body also for a mitzvah. It's part of a divine experience. But when the world is detached, from its source, now we look at certain parts and often we see in it not its true depth and essence, we see it from a very external point of view, which could bring a person to a place that's less than noble and less than moral. Another nice recent development in the world, which we're not uh, going to elaborate on, because after the Eitzatast there's a split. But by Kriyas Yamsov, the world was aligned with its source, which that's the concept of song. Song means harmony. Singing is about harmony. The world was a harmonious place. There was unity. She saw it, didn't see what Yechaskel didn't see. Zekeli. So they have to sing. And Miriam knew this, so they sang. So as the voice of freedom saturates the world... And the voice of the feminine saturates the world. You can look at it from two perspectives. You can look at it from a superficial perspective and see the threat to religion, the threat to faith, the threat to God. The woman has the power to look at it the way the daughter of light, the way Tamar, the way Ruth sought, and look at it from a deeper perspective and reveal the soul of it. And the soul of it is... That ultimately, the objective is that we build a relationship that's not only based on Baili, but it's also based on Ishi. It's based on revealing the deepest depths of your core, of your soul, to bring out that Hashem speaks not only to you, but through you, within you. And that Mipsari Echzelika, that a Jew and a human being on his or her deepest level is one with the Divine. That's the feminine gift, that's the feminine quality. That's the ur of Mashiach that will initiate the kol kala, 
the element of mitzvahs p'telis, of complete individuality and freedom, because we'll realize the complete oneness between the Jew and Hashem. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.